Imagine a culture that celebrates women as fonts of wisdom. Imagine a culture that values more than just intellectual ways of knowing. For example, that values synchronicities and dreams and intuition. Imagine teachers who encourage the student to foresee the path ahead, not just looking for an immediate solution. Imagine a sage who requires the inquirer to participate in order to have deeper learning. Imagine shamanesses who invite us to be all we can be. Those are the oracles of Delphi. For thousands of years, the oracle of Delphi was consulted before any major decision was made. Kings came before her. No major decision was made in the ancient Greek world without consulting the oracle. There are many different phases of the oracle during the history of Delphi. At first, she was an earth mother goddess. In fact, Delphi is surrounded by mountains, including the holy mountain of Mount Parnassus. And you can see in the shape of Mount Parnassus, it looks like a giant womb, a womb, a uterus. And this was the mother goddess in earth itself. Later, a goddess who was, uh, Gaia was the, the first mother goddess, and there are figurines in Delphi that are between five and 7,000 years old that are made of clay, and it shows the most ancient earth mother goddess. And then, she became embodied as Gaia, or Gaia, the mother, the earth mother goddess. And Gaia had a daughter named Themis, who was the goddess of order and of natural law. And she was able to see everything that would happen in the past and the present and the future. And the mythical king who founded Athens, Aegeus, who the Aegean Sea is named after, there is an ancient plate that shows him bowing before the goddess when she is Themis. And then later in history, Themis's granddaughter, Phoebe, 
was the goddess of the oracles, and she too was able to see beyond the usual limits of time and space. And then sometime around the eighth century before our era, Apollo and the Olympian gods came to Greece. And Apollo became the god associated with Delphi and the oracles spoke on behalf of the god. When you visit the temple of Apollo at Delphi today, you can see an underground chamber that goes to the Holy of Holies. And this was where the oracles would enter. And ancient historians reported that there were fumes coming up through a fissure in the ground and that the god, that the, um, excuse me, that the oracle would sit on a tripod above these fumes and she would hold a sprig of laurel and she would look into a bowl of water and she would tell petitioners, she would answer their questions. And you were only allowed to approach the Oracle Adelphi one time in your life. And she only spoke one day per month and only nine months per year. And the petitioner had to cleanse him or herself in the nearby sacred spring and would ask the question. So for the ancient Greeks, they believed that they were speaking to the deity itself through the mouth of the oracle. And recent research has shown that there are two major fault lines that cross like an X underneath the temple of Apollo in the Holy of Holies. And their research has also shown evidence of gases that came up that would induce a borderline state. So the oracle would prepare herself, she would fast, she would only present the oracles, but the person is called an oracle and what they say is also called an oracle. She would only present the oracles on one day a month and it's believed that perhaps this is when the gases were safe for her to be able to be seated above in order to speak with the petitioners. These women were chosen for their natural ability. And sometimes they were called oracles, sometimes they were called Pythias, and Pythias are associated with the serpent, and the serpent is associated with the divine feminine. And sometimes they were called Sibyls. And in Greek, Sibyl comes from Theobol, T-H-E-O, which is the deity, and bull, which is singing, so she's singing, singing from the divine. So she presented her oracles for thousands of years, again, possibly as early as 5000 BCE. And then eventually the oracles ended because the Roman emperor Theodosius forbade any of the ancient traditions around the year 394 of our era. So thousands and thousands of years, people came to have this connection with the divine, especially with the divine feminine. And there was a very important stone placed 
in the temple area. And it was called the Amphalos, which means navel or belly button. And it was believed that Delphi was the center of the world and that it was connected through its navel to the mother goddess. We're going to look at how the oracles were celebrated as fonts of wisdom. No major decision was made without first consulting the oracle. And on the path leading up to the temple of Apollo, there were these stone treasuries that were built, which were little buildings that were filled with treasures that were given in thanks for the oracle's advice. They were able to see beyond the usual limits of time and space. Again, through synchronicities, through intuition, through dreams. And you may be familiar with the one of the most famous oracles associated with Delphi. And this is King Croesus and his request for advice from the oracle. Croesus was the most rich man in that part of the world. He was all powerful. He was the king of Lydia and he had everything he wanted. And he had a question for the oracle and he wanted to see if the oracle was authentic or not. So he sent his representatives to Delphi and he said, I'm gonna be doing something at a particular time, ask the oracle what I'm doing. And the oracle saw that he was boiling a tortoise in a metal pot. And that's exactly what he was doing in another part of the world. And that would be a big coincidence to guess that someone was doing that. So Croesus chose then to have his representatives ask the next question. And this is where it's um, important to encourage foresight, to not just to see the immediate question, to answer the immediate question, but to look at how this fits in with the greater path ahead. So before Croesus had sent his representatives to consult with the oracle, he had met with the Greek philosopher Solon. And Solon was one of the sages of ancient Greece. And Croesus said to Solon, thinking the answer was going to be that Croesus was this person, he said to Solon, who's the happiest man in the world? And Solon described someone else who he felt was perfectly happy. And Croesus kept asking these questions of Solon, hoping that he would say, why, Croesus, you're the richest and happiest and most handsome and most, most fulfilled person in the world. But Solon never said that even though Croesus was the most wealthy person in his part of the world at that time. And Solon said, a person's life is entirely chance and nobody knows what the deities may bring tomorrow. You can count no man happy until he dies. So this was a few years before Croesus sent his representatives to see the oracles. And he did this because he wanted to see if he should wage war on the Persians. The Persians were not threatening him at all, but he felt like they could in the future. So he asked his representative to ask the oracle if he should wage war on the Persians. And some of you may be familiar with the response that Croesus received. It was that if you do this, you will destroy a mighty empire. If you wage war with the Persians, you will destroy 
a mighty empire. And Croesus thought this was great. He's like, I'm going to proceed with this. Again, the Persians weren't even threatening him. And it turns out that the Persians defeated Croesus completely. They captured him. And Cyrus, the king of the Persians, asked that Croesus be captured and brought to him, that he not be killed. And he put him on a fire ready to burn him alive. And Cyrus, or, and Croesus then starts calling on Solon, this philosopher. So he doesn't ask Cyrus not to kill him. He calls on Solon and he's like, you were right, you were right. So Croesus, uh, suddenly then Cyrus, the king of Persia says, stop the fire, don't, don't burn Croesus, but they couldn't stop the fire. And then miraculously, the fire stopped when Croesus said, I've learned my lesson. He says to Solon, I've learned my lesson. And this arrogant man became reverent. He finally understood what Solon was saying to him. You can count no man happy until he dies. So even though Croesus was defeated and was about to be burned alive, by his um, calling on Solon, it intrigued Cyrus, the king of Persia, his captor, who then they, um, they became friends and Cyrus was able to learn from Croesus. But Croesus was annoyed with the oracle. He's like, I went and asked. And I said, should I wage war on the Persians? And my answer was, if you do, you will destroy a great empire. So when he sent his representatives back to the oracle to say, why was I given this answer? The obvious response is, Croesus never asked which empire. He did indeed destroy a great empire. It was his own. The oracles often responded in riddles so that the person would have to participate in the response themselves, not just have it handed to them. So the oracles in, expected the inquirers to participate in their own learning. Now, you may, often, you may also be familiar with the oracle's connection with Socrates. And this was related to us by Plato. And um, Socrates, before his famous trial that involves the oracle, he said that if we can understand something through learning, we should learn it. If something is common knowledge, don't ask the oracle. In the same way, if there's something we can do in our own lives with the powers that are already available to us to improve our lot, we should do it, not count on the deities or some magical formula to do it for us. The Stoic Epictetus asked, is the questioner impelled by fear and desire or by a detached wish for truth? So when we ask the oracle, are we expecting a certain answer and we just want her to confirm it for us? Are we really looking for the truth? Epictetus said that we should expect the oracle's response like we expect the, the perception that we get from our eyes. We don't tell our eyes, I want you to see this. We look at and perceive what the eyes send to our brain. In the same way, we should look at what the oracle says to us very impersonally. 
And whatever it is that we're told, we should put it to good use. And no one should be able to prevent us from doing that, even if it's not the response we want. And this, of course, applies to life in general, where we find ourselves. It might not be the answer that we wanted, but we can use it to, we can use, we can put it to the best use. Epictetus also said, when you get a response from the oracle, from the deity, from the master within, from your subconscious, remember whom you have taken as a counselor and who you will be disregarding if you disobey. And in this case, if, if the oracle was speaking on behalf of the deity or our inner self, we would be disobeying the deity. The oracles also invited us to be all we can be, to embrace our destiny. The father of Pythagoras went to the oracle and he didn't know his wife was pregnant. And the oracle said, your wife is with child. And that she would give birth to a man who was supremely beautiful, wise, and beneficial to humankind. And that is how Pythagoras got his name, named after the Pythia, the oracle who gave that advice. In some versions of the story, his mother went to the oracle, but in, it's either his mother or his father. And ancient historians reported that it was an oracle who taught Pythagoras about the, his um, moral laws. He taught in three different degrees, and the Pythias are the ones who informed Pythagoras of his moral doctrines. He said that he got them from the Delphic priestess. Now, I mentioned Socrates, and you may be familiar with the story of Socrates and his trial. Socrates was put on trial for corrupting the youth of Athens and for introducing false deities. However, when Socrates chose to defend himself at this trial, he said, that's not really what I'm on trial for. Here's really why I'm on trial. My childhood friend went to the Oracle at Delphi and asked, is there any man wiser than Socrates? And she said, no. And Socrates said, I thought, surely that cannot be correct. So I started going to different people. He first interviewed a man with a high reputation for wisdom. This was a politician. And he wanted to prove that this politician was more wise than himself, than Socrates was. But he found after speaking to this politician that he thinks that he knows something which he does not know. Whereas Socrates said, I am quite conscious of my ignorance. Then Socrates thought, well, the poets and the dramatists and the musicians, they're all more wise than I am. But after he interviewed them, he found that they didn't understand the sublime messages of their creations. Then he interviewed craftspeople. He thought, surely they are more wise than he was, than Socrates was. But he found with the craftspeople that based on the strength of their technical proficiency, they claimed a perfect understanding of every other subject, which he found that, he, that they did not have. So Socrates in his own defense said, 
That is why I still go about seeking and searching in obedience to the divine command. If I think that anyone is wise, whether citizen or stranger, and when I think that any person is not wise, I try to help the cause of the divine by proving that he is not. This occupation has kept me busy and has reduced me to extreme poverty. And as you know, the, um, the, the jury, which was made up of 500 men, voted against him and Socrates was condemned to death. So Socrates proved that no one is wiser than Socrates because he knows nothing. And it's interesting to consider, is anyone wiser than someone who knows that they know nothing? And this is an important part of the Rosicrucian tradition and the legend of the mythical character Christian Rosenkreutz, who knows that he knows nothing. So now we're going to participate in a meditation related to the oracles of Delphi. If you would please close your eyes and take three deep breaths. Now visualize the culture that you live in, celebrating women as fonts of wisdom. See your culture celebrating women as fonts of wisdom. What would that look like? Who are these women? What are their roles in your society, in your culture, the place where, you're, where you live? Women as fonts of wisdom, what are their roles in your society? Who do they work with? Now, see your culture, your society, where, wherever you live, valuing more than intellectual ways of knowing. For example, seeing beyond the usual limits of time and space, such as with intuition or dreams or synchronicities. How can that manifest in your world? How can it manifest in your life? How can you embrace more than intellectual ways of knowing? For example, dreams or intuition or synchronicities. 
Now, imagine teachers, and it doesn't just have to be a classroom teacher, but people who are models or examples, who encourage foresight to see not just an immediate solution, but to see the greater path ahead. Imagine leaders who are not just trying to win the next election, but are dedicated to the greater path ahead. Now consider some answers in your life that you may hope to receive. How can you see beyond just the immediate situation? Whatever it is that you're approaching or you may want to know more about, how can you see how it fits with the full course of your lifetime? for the most important things that you participate in? How can you see that it fits with the full course of your country's history or the future of our planet? Beyond just the immediate solution, how can your actions have a greater impact farther down the path? Now, imagine a sage either in your life or in your society who expects inquirers to participate in their own learning. They don't just hand you the answer. And if it's something that you can do on your own, you do it. You don't expect someone to produce a result magically. What is some action that you can take to be of service to others right now? Now, imagine shamanesses who invite us to be all we can be, to step into our destiny. What do you want to know about your destiny? If you could see beyond the usual limits of time and space, What subject do you want to be enlightened? And if you could speak with the divine in order to be the most you can be, 
what would you ask? Open yourself to messages from the oracles of Delphi, from your inner self, from your subconscious, from the divine within to help you fulfill your destiny. This can happen at any time in any place. So mote it be.